Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning. I'm good. It's good to see you this morning. I missed you last week. My family was with one of our, our mission partners, a church in Salina called the Mill Community Church. Uh, if you haven't clued into what God's doing up there, it's just incredible to be a part of. And we got to, I got to encourage them and, and preach and, and then do the whole like set up and tear down church thing in a school and it was a blast. And so we praying for our friends in Salina and if you know folks up there, point them that direction. But it's good to be with you this morning and to, to jump back into the book of Acts. I had to get out of Acts, which was just like completely confused me last week. But we're in Acts, and the cool thing about Acts is that it's, it's not just history, but it's history with a purpose. Uh, it's history with a purpose. It's not just the story of how Christianity began and how the church grew and moved, but even more than that, it's a study of the work and the person of the Holy Spirit and the lives of people who trust Jesus. And the really amazing thing for us, the incredible thing is that the way that he moved then and the incredible stuff we've been learning about is just the way he moves. It's the way that he works. Or in other words, the way God the Holy Spirit worked in the earliest days of the church is exactly the way he desires to work today in our church. And that's something that I want you to understand and to believe in. Uh, we saw in Acts 1.15, remember this, that there were 120 people gathered before the coming of the Holy Spirit. 120 people following Jesus, waiting and praying in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, that they would fulfill Jesus' calling on their life. Acts 2, 3,000 were added to that number. By the end of Acts 2, and day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Acts 4, verse 4 says, many of those who heard the message of Jesus believed, and the number of, of men, at least, came to be about 5,000. And I want you to understand, this rapid movement and growth of the church, what the Holy Spirit was doing through these, these Christians who just depended on the presence and power of God in their life, was in the face of a Roman Empire in which the Caesar was deified. He was to be worshipped as God above all gods. And as long as you bowed before him, you were okay. But if you refused or you resisted that, well, you could be executed. And in this Roman Empire, Eastern mysticism had taken a hold, which meant basically anything and everything also could be God. As long as you worshipped Caesar most of all, then you could have a Build-A-Bear theology and just assemble a set of beliefs that makes you feel warm and fuzzy that you could snuggle up to at night. And at the same time, you had Jews who were strictly, tightly holding on to illegalism and outright rejecting the church of Jesus and even beginning to persecute those who claim to follow Jesus. And you saw that last week when Patrick was preaching, and we learned about Peter and John being arrested by the Sanhedrin, or the, the Jewish religious police. They were brought in, and they were threatened, and, and like thumb was put on them, and eventually they were released. Um, but something that is just beautiful for us is that it's not just the historical context of the church, but it should be a great hope for us to read of this story. Because if the church could root and grow in times and situations like these, where life wasn't really incredibly different from our situation today, where we worship just about anything and everything, and, and we have a Build-A-Bear, what's my truth, what's your truth, what's whose truth, then he can. He can work exactly as he did then in our day today. Is that something you believe? 
Is that something you desire to see take place in our day? Yes, good. We're on the same page then. They do deeply as well. And this morning, what I want you to see in our text, we'll pick up where we left off last week, is there is an aspect of early church life that may be the most underestimated and least imitated aspect of their life by our church today or the church today. It's the way the early church prayed that I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the nature and the character of the prayers of the early church. Um, Warren Wearsby said this, he said, the name of Jesus Christ has not lost its power. Listen to this. The name of Jesus Christ has not lost its power today, but many of God's people have lost their power because they have stopped praying like this to a sovereign God. I want you to see that today. So turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is right where we left off last week in the middle of this chapter. I'll remind you, Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin were preaching the name of Jesus. They were not in trouble because they healed the lame beggar. Uh, no one was mad that they had mercy. No one was mad that they had good deeds. No one was mad about good works. But as soon as they started talking about this all being about Jesus, that Jesus is God, Jesus is king, every good thing comes from Jesus, now people are mad and offended. And they're hauled in and they're threatened. And, and you have that beautiful line where Peter says, look, I don't know what's right in the eyes of God to listen to you or to listen to him, but I can't help but talk about what I've seen and heard in Jesus Christ. And so the Sanhedrin was like, well, you just better stop talking about him, okay? And then they go, there's nothing we can do. And so they kick them out and release them. And this is where we pick up in verse 23. It says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, saying, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. When Peter and John were released, they, they run to, it says, their companions. And I think it's not everything, but it is something. They, they didn't run to all of the other apostles and gather up. They could have. That had been fine. They didn't go to a council of elders or a council of leaders and say, what do we do now? And that's not what they did. That probably would have been fine. But it says that they ran and gathered with their own companions. And the word there means to those to whom they belonged. They belonged to some people. They saw themselves as belonging to a group of friends. And those people belonged 
to them. And notice when they get there, they don't start grumbling or gossiping about the things that have been going on and how they got through it all. It says they reported, they simply came and reported all that had taken place with the chief priests and the elders. And the immediate impulse for all of them is they, with one voice, they lift their voice together in prayer. And there are two things that I want you to notice this morning about their praying. Two things about the nature of their praying that I think would be a really good rubric by which we might compare and contrast some of our own praying. Two things. And the first thing is this. The way they prayed, their prayer was formative and it was informative. Their prayer was formative for them and it was informative to them. Now, you all know I quote... Eugene Peterson quite a bit. He wrote a book about prayer being, uh, the Psalms being a tool for our own prayer life. And in it, he talked about two types of prayer that you see consistently throughout the Psalms, evening prayers and morning prayers. And we've we've actually talked about that kind of thing before, evening prayers and and morning prayers. An example of evening prayer is like in uh, Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is a prayer uh, that is an evening prayer where all of David's worries are laid out before the Lord. That's what marks an evening prayer. Everything that has offended him, everyone who has been against him, everything that would ever make him mad or sad or angry, he lays it all out before God and then he reminds himself of God's promises. And he says, in spite of all the things that come against me, I will trust in you and I will rest well because I know you are God You are God above it all. So evening prayers, these prayers where you lay out everything before God, all of the worries, all of the concerns of the world, you lay before them. Morning prayers, Psalm 5 is a good example of this. These are active, petitionary, bold prayers that that pray against all of the broken things in the world that aren't as they should be and pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I am up this morning. I'm ready to face the broken world. May it be with me and wherever I go as it is in heaven. Evening prayers and morning prayers. Do you see the difference there? I want you to notice this. When Peter and John, they run to their friends, their first impulse in the midst of not just like a bad day, but a day where you got arrested and thrown in prison and threatened to the inch of your life On a day like that, when they come together, they don't gossip, they don't grumble, they don't, you know, sweat it out. They come and immediately they begin lifting their voice to God and they're praising Him. They say, God, you are sovereign over every single thing. You have made all things. You hold all things together. And they have an unshakable faith in the sovereign God. And so they just talk to Him about everything that happened. There's no pretense. There's no like, well, am I I sitting the right way? Where do I put my hands? What What do I do? They just come and they say, oh, you're God above it all. And I just want to talk to you about the thing that I'm I'm facing. And I want you to notice as they do this, they do so with a genuine desire to understand what they're facing, the troubles and the challenges that they're facing in light of God's word. And that's why they quote scripture when they pray. Did you notice that in your Bible? There's a little section in verse 25 and 26 that was probably italicized, maybe set apart from the rest of the text. It's quoting Psalm 2. It's a direct quote. If you go to Psalm 2, 1 and 2, it's the exact same words. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is where their prayer started. They, they come in prayer and it's not God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. It doesn't rhyme, does it? Let us thank him for our food. 
is, I, I, it still bothers me at home when we do this at night. They come to him and they say, God, you are God above it all. We have faced some tough stuff today. But I recognize who you are and I praise you for being the God. And then they begin just simply living out Psalm 119. And I'll show you what I mean. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. How can Peter and John and their companions keep their way pure, walk in rightness in the face of the cultural challenge that they face, the personal problems they face? They do so by aligning their life with God's word, keeping their life in line with God's word. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's exactly what they did. When they turned to prayer, what did they do? Because his word was hidden in their heart, it was treasured in their inner life, it was easy for them when they came together to pray to begin speaking out the words of God back to God. God, I see what's going on. It's the thing that you have said. It's informing their posture and their position in light of what they're facing. Verse 105 of Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They said, God, you're above it all, and I can see by the light of your word exactly what's going on in our day. I can see by the light of your word exactly what the darkness is showing in our day. It's exactly what you said in Psalm 2 would happen. It's happening right now. Verse 27, for truly in this city, they were gathered, the Gentiles, the nations, they were gathered against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Because they had such a value on the word of God guiding their life and keeping them in life, they had a biblical perspective of the things that they were facing. Not a cultural perspective, not a my truth kind of perspective, but a biblical perspective, and it's informing them to the reality of their personal problems, what they mean and what they stand for, and it enlightens them to the cultural problems that they face. At the same time, it's forming their countenance and the character of their response. Because they have a biblical perspective, they can see their life in the light of God's word and what's really true and not just what their emotions may be telling them at that moment. And it is forming them in the way they respond and react to the cultural challenge they face. And I wonder for us, how many of us, it would be true that our first impulse whenever we're dealing with some massive thing in our life. Whenever we're feeling challenged or troubled, I wonder for how many of us our first impulse is to turn in God, turn to God in prayer, to praise Him. Life stinks today, but God, you're God above it all. And there's more joy to be found in knowing you than in anything that I could ever pursue or think I would want for myself in this life. And God, I will rest in you. And God, your word will tell me what is true. And God, I will place all of my faith in you. wonder how many of us, that's our first impulse when we face difficulties, rather than complaining and, and pitching a fit and gossiping. And I think that, that probably when it's not our first impulse, this is one of the reasons that so many people today are turning away from the church. They're, they're turning aside from the church because churches and Christians are behaving badly, poorly, Right? Because rather than doubling down and saying, Lord, I see you, Lord, I want to know what you see here and what you want for me, 
We, we lash out against the things that offend us. We cling to power. We post stupid social media posts about everything that we think and feel in any given moment rather than turning to the God above it all and praising him that in the midst of the troubles of the world that he is always faithful. He alone is faithful and our life is found wholly and solely in him. I think it's also one of the reasons that we struggle to sleep at night. Why we have such anxiety and such, such stress and such worries in our life. Why we can't rest well in His grace. Because it's not often our first impulse when we face a difficulty to just fall before God and praise Him and cling to Him in prayer. What do we do when we're worried or upset or afraid? A lot of things. A lot of things I do. What does David do in Psalm 4? Listen to what he does. He laid out all of his troubles, and then he says, But God, in peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. He was running for his life. There were people threatening, persecuting him, chasing him down, wanting him dead. But he goes, Oh, but God, my life is found in you. My peace is found in, in you. So regardless of what's going on tomorrow morning, tonight I will lie down. And I will rest because you alone are God. And I think if we would develop the practice of evening prayer, we might find that there's a similar peace for us. Uh, an incredible peace. One that can't be explained by human measures. One that would be that miraculous kind of peace in the storm kind of peace that people go, I don't understand how you're making it through this. And you go, oh, but God, right? I think also it would give us the capacity to rest to rest well and not be consumed with anxiety, knowing that our prayers are heard by the one whose arm controls everything, that he's listening and that he's near to us, and that would steady us and that would settle us, that would bring calm to our fears, that our emotions wouldn't get the best of us, and we wouldn't act a fool when we go out from this place and face difficulties in life. If your prayers and my prayers are not informing the way we view and the way we see the challenges in our day, and if your prayers and my prayers aren't forming our hearts and our minds and our actions, I would encourage you, I would exhort you, as my friend Justin did with me this week, to look at Psalm 25, 4 and 5 and make this the centerpiece of your daily prayers. Here's Psalm 25, 4 and 5. The psalmist says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Not my ways, not the world's ways, not any ways. Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. That's a, that's a prayer that will lead to informing your mind and your perspective on, on the trouble that you're facing on Tuesday. That, that's the kind of prayer that will form in your countenance and character a right response to the brokenness of this world and not one that is marked by sin. You see that? First thing that you see in this, this prayer with Peter and John and their companions is that they have a, a kind of prayer life that is both informative and formative to their daily experience. Second thing is this. Their prayer was missional. It was missional. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats... We're not turning a blind eye to this stuff. We're not pretending like there aren't troubles in the world. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal 
and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You can see there's an expectation in them that God is not done with them. Do you see that? There's a holy expectation in them that though the world may rage against God and his people, though the world may rage against Jesus and those who have faith in Jesus, that God's not done working in and through them. Their prayer wasn't just this evening prayer of, of laying down my worries before the Lord so that I can, I can have some peace and sleep at night. No, their prayer was also a morning prayer that got up and said, God, there's some really nasty stuff going on in this world. And I pray that wherever I go and wherever I am, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the mission of God and the movement of the church would move through them and that their testimony would not fall flat into all of the places that they go. Now, I want you to understand this. The most central purpose of prayer is always this one thing. The most central purpose of prayer is to turn us from asking for good things from God to turn us to actually asking to know the good God. Does that make sense? The, the real central purpose of prayer is that we wouldn't just desire good things from him, but that we would desire God himself, that we would know him and love him, and we would grow in love with him, and we'd grow in faith in his goodness. That's the central purpose of prayer. It's a relationship gift. It's a relationship tool that allows us to go deep with the one true and living God. But... I also agree with the pastor who said this, and this is really cool. He said, prayer is like a walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Listen to this line. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Boom. <laughs> Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. I think there's something to that, don't you? Yeah. I also think there's something to the line by the author of the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He didn't just write a Christmas song. He wrote this line. He said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. You've heard people quote that before, right? Maybe even a president at one time. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Now listen to this. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. No, pray for powers equal to your tasks. That's how the early church prayed. <laughs> that's how the early Christians pay, prayed. And that's the way that we should be praying today if we want to see a powerful movement of God in our day. It is. Look at verse 29 again. This kind of prayer is bold. Now, God, take note of their threats. Who? The Roman culture, the Jewish culture, those who would threaten to do us harm, those who want to see the church crushed, those who, who take life in a way that is completely in contrast to the things that we hold dear. Oh God, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And they can pray this way because they know what God's will is. They already know. It's not a question, God, what do you will in this situation? We pray like that a lot, don't we? God, what would you want to take place in my life in this world? They know what God's will is. It's that the church would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They know that. That his healing hand, his healing touch would move in their lives and through their lives to every person they encounter. That the world may know that Jesus is God. Every good thing comes from him. That he is king and king of all. And people would just turn to him and receive life in his name. They know that's God's will. 
so they know how to pray. Take note of their threats, God. Oh, but give us boldness to speak in the face of their threats. Give us boldness to speak as we expect healing to take place by your hand, in the name of Jesus, through your church. They know what his will is. He's shown them what his will is in his word. They know the word. They pull it out from their heart. They've hidden it deep in their heart. They've treasured it. They pull it out in prayer. They know what his will is. They know how the story ends. They know how the story ends when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And remember our study of 2 Peter last week. Maybe they have some inkling. Maybe they have some understanding. Maybe they have some appreciation that God is just being patient. Jesus hasn't returned. He hasn't made all things new yet because he's being, we know this, he's being patient, waiting, giving opportunity for more people to turn to Jesus for life. They know what his will is. So they have morning prayers that say, God, there's some broken things in this world. Here's some specific stuff that we see, and it's awful. Make us bold in the face of this stuff. Make us faithful in the face of this stuff. Would you do supernatural workings through us in the face of this stuff that the world would know the healing hand of Jesus? I want to give you a phrase to memorize and to, to ponder on. It's a very simple phrase. The phrase is this. No prayer equals no power. No prayer equals no power. I'll give you an example of how I see this and why I believe it's true. You remember Matthew 17, the story of the transfiguration? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of a mountain, leaves the other disciples down at the bottom of the mountain doing mission stuff. He takes them up, a little spiritual retreat with Jesus. And in this moment, a miracle takes place. The humanity of Jesus, with which he'd been clothed in the incarnation, is pulled back for a moment, and they get revealed to them the real glory of Jesus. Maybe, maybe even this is what, you can't describe it. It's just so glorious. They just say it's bright. There's not a color for that. There's not a, a good description. It was blinding. Jesus is so glorious, so holy. And, and the guys, Peter, James, and John, are like, this is amazing. Like, what, what, what do we want to do with the troubles of the world down there? Let's just build tabernacles and stay here. It's good to be with you here, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. This isn't the time for this. It's time to get back to work. And so Jesus and Peter, James and John, they head down the mountain, back down to where the other disciples are doing mission stuff. And what do they find? They find that the other disciples are in deep water, aren't they? They're in trouble. They're, they're there doing the mission of God's stuff that they were supposed to be doing, but none of it is working. They have failed. They have failed publicly. They are confused. They are embarrassed. They're ashamed. The crowd is turning against them. It's kind of a, a riotous moment. And Jesus enters into the scene, and Jesus does the thing that they had been called to do, but really they could only do in his name. They could really only do by his power. The thing that Jesus always does, he comes and he meets the need of humanity. Jesus meets the need. The calm crowd uh, calms, and then Jesus takes the disciples to a private place, we're told. And there, they're kind of desperate, and they say, Jesus, what happened? Why, why, why couldn't we do the thing that we were called to do? Why couldn't we do the thing that we were supposed to do? We've watched you do it. We've done it before. What happened? Why did we fail? And Jesus responds to them by talking about their faith. And he says, look, if you had just the tiniest amount of faith rightly placed, you could have done this and so much more. But your faith wasn't rightly placed. Your faith was in yourself. You were trusting yourself to do this thing. And Jesus said this. He said, this kind of thing can only be done by 
prayer. You see my point? No prayer equals no power. Disconnect from the holiness and the power and the beauty and the splendor of the God of the universe who reigns above it all, in whom life is given, and you have no power to do any good thing whatsoever. No prayer equals no power. All right, I'm speculating a little on this, but I imagine if in Acts 4, if rather than their first impulse being to raise their voice to God in prayer, praising Him and, and asking Him to interpret their cultural moment and to empower them to face whatever would come. If instead their first impulse was to begin planning what are we going to do next and plotting how are we going to get through the Sanhedrin next time or, or giving high fives to Peter saying, dude, you took out the whole Sanhedrin. Look at you. If that had been their first impulse, I think God's move might have been a little different than what we read in the text. God's move might then have been to humble them. His move might then been, have been to redirect their focus. I taught on this to the church in Salina last week. It, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is growing. They're very excited. John says that they were about to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And Jesus says, disciples, time to go. Get in the boat. Head out to the storm. He needed to humble them and he needed to redirect their focus that they would understand he is the king they've been waiting on, but he's not doing it in the way that they're expecting. I think if, if in this moment the church's first impulse was to grumble, to gossip, to plan, to high-five each other, it might have been a moment for God to humble them and redirect their focus. But because their first impulse was to pray in a formative and informative and missional way, here's what happened. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He empowered them. He filled them to, to the brim, and he was bursting forth from them. Love and grace and power, and they began speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. And that's why signs and wonders and miracles were taking place through the apostles. That's why the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved, because they were fully dependent on the Holy Spirit who was swelled within them and working his way out through their lives. And they will have many more problems, the church will. We're going to next week begin our Lent study. We're going to jump out of Acts for a little bit. We'll be in John 17. But after, after Lent, after Easter, we'll come back to Acts. And we're going to see they have a lot more trouble ahead, a lot more problems. But prayer won't be a problem for them. They will continue to have their minds and their hearts, their perspectives, their view of life set by God's word and by prayer. That will help them to see the world as God sees it, to see themselves as God sees them, and to see their purpose, their mission, and the way that God sees it. And they will believe, they will believe what God has for them is what's best for them. Uh, you'll see this when we come back to it, that prayer wasn't for them just an invocation, which it so often is for us. Prayer wasn't just a thing you do before you eat or before you sing, before you start a worship service, before you go out and serve. Hey, let's say a quick prayer, and then we're going to go out and and serve. It wasn't just an invocation, but prayer was, it was everything. It, it was living on mission. It wasn't just the fuel for their mission, but praying in the way that they did all the time. That was living missionally. A massive aspect of living on mission is praying like this. And in general, 
in general, I think it's true that a lot of us treat prayer more lightly than we should, and we give up on prayer more quickly than we ought to. Do you, you see that? Yeah, I do in my life. But Acts shows us when the church prays like this, my goodness, when the church prays like this, churches are planted, thousands of people turn to faith, miracles are done, works of God are seen, cities are turned upside down when the church prays like this. Not because of skill, not because of technique, not because of programs or planning or a, a great marketing PR department for the church, but because the church prayed like this. And I remember last year on our Mission Sunday when we had Pastor David from La Chapelle in Montreal come. Do you remember when he was here? Here's something he said, oh yeah. That's how I'm still oh yeah in this. He said this, that God is looking, I'd say it in a French accent because he speaks French, but you guys would not like that. God is looking for people who will pray according to his will. He's waiting for partners to pray on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God desires from his people. That's what God desires from our church. Not that we'd survive another day. Not that we'd tune our radios to a different station. Not that we'd shelter in place. Not that we would, we would not be stained by, that we would pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all that that implies in my life, in my home, in my workplace, in every place that I go, and in every person that I interact with, may it be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And I'd ask you three questions this morning as we close. As Peter and John left their trouble and they ran to their companions, question number one, who do you go to and whom do you pray with? Who do you go to? Who do you belong to? Who do you run to? And whom do you pray with? Do you have those people? If you don't have those people, just know they're necessary. They're not an option. You need those people. Who do you go to and whom do you pray with? Second question, as scriptures informed and form them in prayer, how is the Bible helping you to understand and interpret your present? And how does the Bible help you to face it faithfully? How does the word, did you see what they did? They recalled God's word from their heart. They said, Psalm 2, oh Lord, I can see it now. This very thing is happening right now in front of me. Because I can see it, because I know that you are not surprised by it, because I know that, that the next line in that Psalm 2 says, and the Lord scoffs. <laughs> He's not shaken by the raging nations of the world. He has established his king on the throne with a rod of iron that defeats all uh, of his enemies, right? They know the scripture and it informs and interp them, their interpretation of their cultural moment, their personal problems, and it helps them to face it faithfully. Third question is this. As the Holy Spirit filled them and they began to speak the word of God with boldness, to whom does the Holy Spirit want you to speak boldly? And there should be an answer to that. <laughs> uh, there's not, not an answer to that. There should be an answer to that. To whom does the Holy Spirit want you to speak boldly? I think the right thing for us to do right now is to pray. And I want to encourage you to do, encourage us too light. I want to push you out of your comfort zone for a moment and ask you, like Peter and John, to pray with companions today. 
we're not the best at this. We're not. We, we are, are much better at, at isolating ourselves in prayer, at protecting ourselves, at not feeling awkward um, with other people. But I, I'd like to push you this morning a little out of your comfort zone and ask you to reach around to some companions and pray with them. And maybe that's someone who's sitting by you or maybe there's someone the Lord is leading you to run over to this morning and pray with them and pray these things. God, God, what is it that you are doing in my day? God, what is it that you want to do in my day? God, I, a lot of us are, are, are turning to pray to God. We should be praying with God. God, I know what it is that you're wanting to do. Would you give me the boldness to do the thing that you're calling me to do? To whom are you calling me to speak boldly this day? So would you do that right now with, with no pretense and, and no really right way to do this? Would you stand where you are? There's no right way, there's no wrong way to do this either. Would you gather with some people? Would you gather with some companions? And would you spend the next four or five minutes seeking the Lord together, raising your voices with one accord, praising the God above it all, and asking His power? As Tozer said, pray until you pray. Can you do that for me? I'll get our time started. Father, we come to you, your church. We belong to you, and we belong to each other. And I pray in these next few moments we'd get over our insecurities and our fears, and you would bind us together. Our voices would be lifted in unison, and may we feel the presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, this is your time to pray.